Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much that um, until that day when we find ourselves uh, in your presence and we receive that uh, glittering crown and then we place that crown that you give to us, the crown of life, and we lay it at your feet and we cast it down in honor of you for what you have done for us. For we know, Lord, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by your spirit. It's through what you do in us and through us. And Father, we just pray that this morning as we are under the teaching of your word, we thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you've given to Michael Rader, not only to um, understand and exposit scripture, but to apply it to our lives. And we pray that this morning again as we are under the teaching of your spirit, as Mike brings your words, that together we may be strengthened and encouraged and refreshed and renewed for the tasks that you give to us until that day when you call us home. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Michael. God bless you as you continue to lead us this morning. Thank you again, Jack. It's been a delight to be with you. I have to go after today's session. I've got a meeting in town this afternoon, but I'll come back with the very lovely Sarah Rader tomorrow morning. We'll get to meet the better half. Uh, if you turn, please, in your Bibles uh, to uh, Judges chapter 16, we looked this morning at the, the Samson story, and I'll uh, read the uh, well-known end to that story, a rather gripping conclusion. I'll pick up at verse 4 of chapter 16. May I just say that Tomorrow we'll uh, look at uh, 17 to 21. It's a, a long section. Uh, in today's business, if you do get a chance to read it, it is very readable. At times, somewhat stomach, stomach churning. But if you get a chance to read it, that would just help uh, tomorrow. I'll just read a couple of sections, but that would be really useful. But uh, picking up chapter 16, verse 4. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how he can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them, then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes of his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, 
All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with a pin, I become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So, he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, Remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might 
and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He led Israel twenty years. This is the word of the Lord. I like those kind of games. I think they call them parlour games where you uh, pretend you have a dinner and you, you can invite any six guests from, let's say, the 20th century and any six guests to be your your, your, ho- your guests for the night. Or you're flying up in a plane and the seat next to you is free and you can pick anyone to be your travel companion for 10 hours on the flight. Who would you pick? Well, I'd pick my wife, of course, first of all, but assuming she wasn't available. I think... I I think I'd pick Billy Graham. He's a bit old now, I think, to fly. Billy's probably pushing 100, but let's go back, say, 20 years. I just, I admire Billy Graham enormously. I've read his autobiography, just as I am. A man, I think, of great integrity, great character, who's achieved much for God, arguably, uh, this century's greatest evangelist. Uh, Having said all that, I'm bemused by his success. Now, I, I, I know we can, we, can, we can quibble about his methods, the, the crusade approach. I've read Lloyd-Jones's the critique of that approach and many, he'd be the first to say many have fallen away. But for all that, what God achieved through him was, has been remarkable. Uh, he came to Sydney and Melbourne in 1959 and some would say, I think, credibly, is the closest we've come to revival. Certainly Sydney. He changed Sydney. And it continues today. Men like, you know, the Jensen brothers, Peter and Philip, both converted through the 59 Crusade that had a worldwide impact. Remarkable. The, the, the impact that one man has had. But, here's my conundrum. I just, he's not my favourite preacher. I just, he's good, of course. He's very good. I was watching with my wife a TED Talk a couple of years ago. It was Billy Graham, if you know TED Talks. And my daughter Lauren walked in. Lauren was at that, she's 20 back then, a keen Christian. I said, Lauren, come here, listen to Billy Graham. She'd heard the name, never heard him preach. So sat down, after 10 minutes got bored and walked away. I said, Lauren, this, this is Billy Graham. <laughs> but, oh, just, not, doesn't just do it for me, Dad. Yeah. I talked to people, young, young preachers, who do you listen to? Well, they listen to Keller and Carson, and Piper, and Capel. They listen to, they listen to all these. All, all these. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't listen to Billy Graham. And if you ask me my top 50, who I listen to, frankly, it's not Billy. I mean, I, he, he's very fine, of course. Uh, he, he has great skills in preaching evangelistically. I mean, well-structured, simple, well-delivered. It's all there. I mean, sort of, they're modelled in many ways. It's all that he doesn't compromise. Sin's there. Judgment, wrath, heaven, hell, the cross, atonement, repentance, faith, it's all there. But none of this comes, in my mind, comes near to explaining his phenomenal success. I can think of only one explanation. And I just think the hand of God was on Billy Graham. God chose in his grace to anoint and bless this man, I think like no other, in the last century. You can't explain, I think, the remarkable success of him in simply human 
natural terms. And what's true of Billy Graham is true of Samson. Now, I'm loath to mention those two men even in the same breath. (laughs) Such moral polar opposites they are. Uh, But what I'm thinking about is the scale of their success. Because for all his faults, what he achieved, Samson, was remarkable. And if I ask you, what was the secret? Well, if you ask your daughter or son, they would say, the young, the young boy, well, it was his hair. You know, when his hair was long, he was strong. When his hair was cut off, he was weak. It was in his hair, which of course is nonsense. The hair was just a sign of him being set apart for God. And I'm sure you know it wasn't his hair. But if I ask you, what was the secret of his success? If I ask you, how would you picture Samson in your mind? If you were a movie maker, and to make a movie of Samson, who, who would play Samson, do you think? Well, he's a bit old now, but maybe Arnie? No, a bit old. Perhaps The Rock, right? Yeah, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock? Maybe if you know Dwayne Johnson, you've seen all his discs, you've seen all his movies, good. <laughs> or maybe, maybe uh, was it Chris Hemsworth, Thor? That you'd pick some kind of muscle-bound Mr. Universe, which says... Where do you think the secret of his power was? You think it's in his muscles. I might have Tom Hanks play Samson. <laughs> or Kevin Spacey. But the, the point was, to think it was in his muscles is as silly as to think it was in his hair, isn't it? One episode we'll look at briefly where he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. These are well-armed men. And if you say, well, he must have been very strong, that's as dumb as thinking his hair must have been very long. It wasn't in his muscles. Of course it wasn't. God's hand was upon this man, powerfully, in a remarkable way, to do what he did. It was the anointing of God on this man. Let's turn now. I know you, you know the story well. It's a wonderful story. You've preached it. Let's turn again. Just briefly, just fly over the events, just to recap, and then look at how you might apply it. It's a great story, it's entertaining, it's amusing in parts, dramatic, got everything, uh, lots of violence, lots of it, sex and too much of it, it's, it's all there, and a denouement, an ending, that were just, is tailor-made for Hollywood. It's just a, a great story. And here's Samson, the last judge of Israel, the greatest, uh, but more than just a great judge, he is, as you may know, he really is portrayed as, I think, Israel personified. He is Israel. The history and character of Israel is summed up, given to us in this man. He is like Israel, born miraculously, chosen by God's will, called to be separate, to be distinct, holy, different from the nations, yet immature, fleshly, at times depraved, drawn to foreign women, as if I was drawn to foreign gods. He's captured and oppressed by the godless nations, as Israel was. He's deserted by God. I'm not even aware of it. He cries out to God for deliverance. And in the end, he's victorious and fulfills the purpose for which God chose him. He is Israel. 
Well, let's start at the beginning, and it begins again, the way it always begins, with again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the result is again predictable. God hands them over this time to the Philistines. But now the story takes a surprising twist because this time Israel does not cry out to God. There's no complaint. In fact, if Samson is anything to go by, Israel seems actually quite happy with the Philistines. Quite at ease living beside them, being in their towns and villages. There's always a truce between Israel and the Philistines. But if they aren't uh, Samson's enemies, they are God's and God will act against them and do so through a judge called Samson. His birth, unlike other judges, is given to us at length. A large, a long account, born into the tribe of Dan to a man called Manoah and a nameless, a nameless mother. And she's the important one in the, in the story. As of course, in all the Samson saga, the women play the important part. She is like other women in Israel, godly women. She, she's childless and she's pious. So there were in Israel 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. There were godless people like this woman, a pious woman. She told you to have a baby who will be a Nazarite from birth, to the Lord dedicated. Not, he won't cut his hair. He won't drink alcohol or eat unclean food. Everyone he caught, he flagrantly flaunts during his life. He'll be a Nazarite from his birth until the told verse 8, until the day of his death. Even at his birth, there is there the mention of, of his death, whether a hint perhaps of the importance of his death, like, like another son born miraculously, who's taken to the priest for dedication. And the priest said to the mother, told of the boy, who is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And that enigmatic, sober little statement, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Just the hint there that with that son, his death may play a more important part than his life. Well, we meet Samson face to face in chapter 14 and the introduction is not auspicious. We've just been told in chapter 13 at the end that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. So you may think, if you read the story, well, anointed by God, maybe we have here another, another Moses, another Joshua. <laughs> well, that's soon put aside, isn't it? You meet him, first of all, in a Philistine town called Timnah. What are you doing, Samson? What are you doing in a Philistine town? He sees a woman which pretty well sums up Samson's life, actually. He sees a woman and he wants her. And the first words we hear from the mouth of Samson are these. I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me. Here's the spirit-anointed servant of God. Set apart for God, forbidden to marry a pagan woman, but what Samson wants, wants, Samson gets and you don't argue with Samson. He operates entirely through the whole story on the basis of his lusts. 
He seems to have just no moral compass. He lusts and he hates and goes after what he wants. His parents try to reason with him. They say, Samson, why go there? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? God forbade that. Isn't that, isn't that a woman from your our own tribe? I mean, if, if a kid in your youth group begins to date a non-Christian, that's a worry. But when the senior pastor gets engaged to a militant atheist or a Muslim, what, what's going on? He's the judge of Israel. Wants to marry a pagan. Moses replied to his parents, get her for me. She's the right one for me, or literally, she's right in my eyes. Isn't that Israel? There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. Then we come, I think, chapter 14, verse 14, and the key verse of the whole narrative. You have to wonder, don't you, why does God put up with Samson? I mean, again and again, why? Well, here's why. Verse 14. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson sought, presumably, a beautiful woman. But this was from the Lord. He wanted to marry her and brazenly ignore his calling. And this was from the Lord. Later he'll kill a lion, pollute himself by touching a corpse, set a riddle, massacre Philistines, because this was from the Lord. Then he sleep with a prostitute, surrender to the wiles of the luscious Delilah, because all this was from the Lord. God is hardly mentioned in this whole sorry saga, but he is there at every turn of the narrative, fulfilling his purpose to save Israel and to judge the Philistines. Then through chapters in 14 and 15 you see the ever-increasing cycle of violence between Samson and the Philistines. Through fear and intimidation they coerce Samson's wife to tell them the meaning of the riddle. She does so. He's so angry, Samson, he kills 30 Philistines. But, but no one knew that this was from the Lord. Then still burning with anger he goes back to, to his wife-to-be, is told by her father, he's married her off to somebody else. So Samson finds 300 jackals, and who knows how, <laughs> ties their tails together, whacks in a torch, sets them free in the grain field, and causes havoc. But no one knew that this was from the Lord. Then the Philistines wreak their own havoc, and burn alive Samson's wife or wife-to-be and her father. Samson responds in kind and then tears them apart, we're told, limb by limb with a great slaughter. And now you see, now a personal feud becomes an international crisis. They're on the brink of war. And the Philistines say to Israel, bring this man to us or it's warfare. 
and Samson surrenders. He's bound with ropes and then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him in power. And with the jawbone of a donkey, he slays a thousand. And no one knew that this was from the Lord. And so we come to the final climactic scene of the story. It begins with a brief story of Samson again in Philistine territory in Gaza, in a brothel, in the arms of a prostitute. And we're told the Philistines see this as a great opportunity to, to finally get Samson. Now, it's a strange little episode, and a lot of little don't knows, I think, in the episode. Like, um, we don't know how Samson got wind of their plot. We don't know how he evaded all the waiting troops. How he tore apart the gates of a city and didn't wake up all the guards. How he put the gates on his shoulders and carried them for miles up a hill. And if you say, well, he must have been very strong, that's like saying his hair must have been very long. We we just don't know. It's the Spirit of God. But again, the the answer is found in in that key verse. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. But at that time, they were ruling over Israel. The gates were a symbol, as you know, of a city's strength. So to take the gates off and carry them away is to mock the Philistines, again, to humiliate them. And they've had enough. They've had enough. They plan to do the same to him. And finally, the occasion arrives in the arms of another woman. We now come to the longest and most important part of the narrative. It begins almost ominously with the words, sometime later, he fell in love. Nothing new there, but what's new here is that for the first time in the story, we are given the name of the woman. We didn't know his mother's name, or his wife-to-be, or the prostitute, but this woman will be so important, we're given her name. Her name is Delilah. And he is clearly besotted with her. The power of sexual attraction can be, as we all well know, destructive, terrifying. And too many times, Samson has played with the fire of lust, and this time the fire will consume him the kings come to Delilah and offer her thousands of shekels to betray him. Just to put things in context, Jeremiah bought a field for 300 shekels. They offer Delilah thousands. They offer her millions of dollars to hand him over. They want him that badly. Well, for all Samson's brutality, he has, I think, as you were, a mischievous streak. We saw that in the riddle. We see it here now with the games he plays with Delilah. But this time the stakes are so much higher. He now plays with things that ought not to be trifled with. Four times she asks him the secret of his strength. Each time he teases her. It's an odd story, isn't it? It's odd. Uh, why does he just sit there time and time again and, and, and nothing wakes him up? I mean, he's such a sound sleeper. He can shave off his head and he just snores away. 
doesn't he realise that every time he tells her the secret of his strength, that suddenly she tells, the Philistines are here? Is he, is he that thick? Doesn't he get it again and again and again? I mean, he may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but really, is he, is he that thick? Not to realise what she's doing? I mean, how, can you, how dumb can you be? Well, he knows what's going on. He's just loving every minute of it. When, when Laura, my daughter, was two, uh, I used to teach at Moore College. We have lunch together with the students. I come home after lunch for coffee with Sarah. Every lunchtime after lunch, we play, Laura would play a game of hide and seek. And I'd, Sarah would hear the back gate opening, say, Lauren, Daddy's coming. And Lauren would hide. And you know where she hid, don't you? The same place. <laughs> same place every day, behind the curtain, feet sticking out. <laughs> and I'd come down, and I'd say, Lauren, where are you? And you hear this giggle. Lauren, are you under the table? What happens? No. That's what she goes out. Uh, Lauren, are you in the fridge? No. If you were there, you'd think, Mike, I mean, you're a Bible college lecturer. Are you so stupid <laughs> not to realise that every day she's there behind the curtain? I mean, how dumb can you be? Of course I It's a game I'm playing and I love it. I look forward to the game. That's Samson, isn't it? That's, it's, it's a game he's playing. He's, he's loving it. He's loving it. And he's besotted with her. And what's more, he thinks he's invincible. His strength won't leave him. He just played the game. We're told that day after day, she nagged him until he was tired to death. And finally, he tells her everything. Born a Nazarite. The mark of that is his hair. Shave the hair and I'll be weak. He no more believes that, of course, than he believes he'd be weak by being tied with seven new bowstrings. He doesn't, he's just it's part of the game. He's playing. For the very fact that when they arrive, he, he bounds up as before. He thinks nothing has changed. He just, it's again, another episode in the game. But things have changed, don't they? And the signs were ominous. The fact he, he told of his Nazarite vow. The fact that this time Delilah is convinced she's won. And this time the kings come with the silver jangling in their pockets. This time they know they have him. Samson has played games with God once too often. This time they're right and he's wrong. Verse 20. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. This time the one who's blind is Samson. And as if to demonstrate that, they gouge out his eyes. The man who went wherever he wanted, did whatever he wanted to do, is now bound. And they to go round and round and round, grinding flour. The one who mocked others, is now himself a public laughing stock. And then, in one short sentence, the writer proves he's one of the greatest storytellers in history. The story isn't over yet. 
but the hair on his head began to grow again. The final scene takes us to the temple of Dagon and the crowd of merry-making Philistines rejoicing in the victory of their God over Samson and his God. But they did not know that this was from the Lord. They bring him in to make fun of him, uh, to entertain them. And there are thousands there, just 3,000 alone on the roof. And around, it's like, I guess, the MCG on Grand Final Day. Every seat taken, every vantage point occupied. Thousands there. But they did not know that this was from the Lord. Samson's resting between two pillars. And in all their revelry and ecstasy and celebration, no one noticed that the hair on his head was long again. And Samson prayed. Not, you've got to say, the model prayer. <laughs> Not, you know, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. <laughs> but just, uh, Lord, let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. The Lord hears the prayer because remember they did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. And Samson killed many more when he died than while he lived. That's the story of Samson. After a life of moral failure he ended well. Um, I became the seventh principal of um, MST-BCV. It began in 1920 as the Melbourne Bible Institute with a man called C.H. Nash. Now, many of you will not have heard of, of, of Nash. He is, in my view, a, a colossus in Australian church history, especially, especially Melbourne. A, 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 just a, a leading figure in our church history. Born in England, um, a tall, handsome man. One of those, those men just, just gifted in everything, very fine academically, great sportsman, uh, great debater, good-looking. Uh, he was ordained as a clergyman, uh, Anglican, uh, worked in a church, as they call us, the curate or the assistant pastor. He got engaged to the vicar's daughter. Uh, the one night, the daughter's sister was playing organ at evening service. His, his fiancée wasn't there. Nash walked the sister home over the common, back to the vicarage, and for some reason tried to kiss the sister of his fiancée, the vicar's daughter, who was not amused, <laughs> and said to Nash, you'll never serve again in England. He left, he fled to Australia, to Tasmania, where you go to flee, uh, worked at a sheep station, uh, went, to, went to Sydney, passed the two churches, then came to Melbourne. Became the vicar of St. Columns in Hawthorne. Became a canon of the cathedral and began, became a leading preacher in Melbourne. But while at Hawthorne, what took place was what the papers called the Hawthorne Incident. It's shrouded in secrecy. Uh, my colleague at BCD, Daryl Paparoff, wrote his PhD on Nash. I said, Daryl, what happened in Hawthorne? He said, I cannot tell you. 
But it appeared, Mash was married at the time, though unhappily married, it appears he made, he showed inappropriate affection to a young lady in the parish. It seemed to be what happened. He was forced to resign. He went to a parish in Geelong, where you, you, you flee if you can't get to Tasmania. Uh, and, uh, and, there, and there too was forced to resign. He was forced to, because then what happened of course, his past in the UK came back to haunt him. And three times he was forced to resign. And the Archbishop, who was staunchly anti-evangelical, thought, here's my chance to get rid of Nash. And he took away his licence. So he worked uh, for a while. He ran a boys' home, uh, taught in a school, passed a small independent church. And then in 1920, some businessmen came to him. They wanted to begin a small Bible college to train missionaries. And would he be the principal? And so began MBI, which he served. He was 54 at the time. He served there for 22 years. He trained over a thousand men and women for ministry and set that college on the path to being, I think, the leading college in this country in the 50s and 60s. He began a midweek Bible study, which hundreds attended in Melbourne. Spoke at Belgrave Heights, which was a great preacher. In his last, his very last sermon to his students at MBI, he said these words. There have been three occasions of failure in my own life when I've gone into the depths of utmost misery. But the miracle of divine grace is that failure is not final. That is the message I bring tonight. That's a, that's a great message, isn't it? That if, in God forbid, you know, we ever blow it like Nash or God forbid like Samson, then to know with God that failure isn't final. There's grace and restoration. Maybe, maybe not back to what you were before entirely, but a man walked into my office five years ago. I run this preaching centre. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. A businessman in a suit and a briefcase. Uh, a very nervous man, actually. He just he seemed to lack confidence. And he was shuffling around and twitching. And I said, how can I help you? And he said, I'd, I'd like to learn to preach. And I turned to my colleague and just looked at John. And I just, I just could never imagine this man. In a pulpit, he just seemed so nervous and lacking in confidence. But I said, Why? well, my wife thinks it would be a good idea. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. So what do you think? He said, I don't feel worthy to preach. I, I, I don't feel worthy to go to church, he said. I've been to church in seven years since I was unfaithful to my first wife and she took away the children. I don't feel worthy to preach. In other words, I'm sorry, Mike, but for me, failure is final. No, it's not, brother. The one place you can go is church. Can't he? He could go to your church, couldn't he? Of course he could. Repentant, find forgiveness, find a ministry. Brother, failure isn't final. For all his terrible, terrible flaws, 
in his death he achieved more for God than through his life. That's all tied to one of the great themes of this story. All the stories of Judges. When things look at their most desperate, God is working out his purposes. That, that verse we all love, you know, Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him. Which doesn't mean, as we know that, it doesn't mean every event has a happy ending. That every cloud has a Christian silver lining. That God takes our messes and makes them his miracles. We know it, it, it means God works all things for our sanctification, our Christ-likeness, his good for us. God ordains events, both good and bad, to achieve his purposes. And looking back, we can see that. I mean, imagine, imagine being in Canaan, being a neighbour of old Jacob. You hear the terrible news. Oh, have you heard about Joseph? The brothers say killed by a, t- a wild animal. Hey, yeah, they would say that. I know those brothers. <laughs> they have had it in for him from the beginning. And have you heard the weather forecast? They say a famine's coming. It could be the worst. It could wipe us out. Makes you wonder. Who's running the show? Imagine being a slave in Egypt. And finally you're free. On the shores of the Red Sea, the sea in front of you, uncrossable, and behind you, the approaching Egyptian army. Now, they're drowned in the water or drowning in your own blood. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Is there a God in heaven? Well, imagine you live in the land of Uz. Go to church with a guy called Job. Have you heard the story? Family, everyone wiped out. And have you seen Job? Look at him. The doctor told me it's the worst case he's ever seen. Probably won't survive. Such, such a godly man that makes you wonder, doesn't it? Makes you wonder. Who's steering the ship? Well, imagine you lived in Susa. Heard the news about, made of mind, Mordecai. Oh, I know Mordecai. He's, he's got that lovely niece, Esther. What a cutie. Well, have you heard? She's been taken, put into the king's harem to marry him. What? That drunken, lecherous old pagan? And such a lovely girl. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Who's the king on the throne? Imagine you lived in Jerusalem, 30 AD. The crowd watching the most wonderful man who had ever lived. Bloodied and beaten to a pulp. Stripped naked before the crowds. Now to a cross there's the smug grins of those Pharisees mocking and jeering and all he'd done the miracles the teaching the kingdom all for nothing that makes you wonder who's really in charge in this world when you look at your own ministry the reformed churches and that dear brother was at recharge and then went and did something stupid like Nash. The ministry in tatters, the church in meltdown, 
the family in grief. And you wonder, don't you? You wonder sometimes, who's, is anyone in control? We affirm God's sovereignty, but we can be troubled by stories like Samson. When God works through violence and betrayal, immorality, but they're all part of God's plans, God's ordained plans to save his people. Let me say, if God hadn't done that, if God hadn't ordained Joseph being sent to Egypt, if God hadn't put Israel on the shore of the Red Sea, if God hadn't ordained Esther to be in that harem, if God hadn't ordained the treachery of Judas, the envy of the Pharisees, the injustice of Pilate, he would not have died and we would still be in our sins and without hope in the world. I couldn't bear to live in a world, in a city, serve in a church where there's no pilot flying the plane, no captain steering the ship, no king on the throne, no God who is sovereign over all, working through all things good and bad for my good and the good of my people. But he is. He's the sovereign God who works through all things, through all things, for our good and for our salvation. But we can't end the story there with Samson or with us. But with the gospel, this story points us to one man betrayed by thousands of shekels of silver, another by 30 pieces, one man beaten and bound and marked, brought into the public arena and resting between two pillars, the other beaten and mocked and tied to two pieces of wood. And while the crowds jeered and mocked, both men prayed. One prayed for vengeance, one prayed for forgiveness. One prayed and thought about himself, the other prayed and thought about the glory of God. And both men died. And both then in their death won a victory far, far greater than any in their life. One man died and the land had peace for a few years. The other man died and brought peace between God and people forever and ever and ever on into eternity. Even Samson, even Samson is a shadow of our Lord on the cross. I just shared with a guy yesterday something I heard this week from Philip Ryken in a sermon. I love it. I'll, I'll, I'll leave this with you. How Christ is in all of Scripture. The Christ is expected in the Old Testament, exhibited in the Gospels, 
explained in the epistles and exalted in Revelation. Expected, exhibited, explained, exalted. Christ, the gospel in all the scriptures. Saving his people and triumphing over his enemies. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Thank you again, Father, for this wonderful story of uh, your flawed servant, Samson. Here we're told in Hebrews, uh, a man of faith, there at the end, uh, he saw in some way the, the land, the hope that he had beyond death and was obedient to death. But thank you too for him, the one that Samson points us to in a far, far, far more glorious way who was obedient to death, even death upon a cross. And therefore, you will exalt him as you would exalt us, who are similarly obedient, even to death. So keep us, we pray, as, as Christian followers, as, as pastors, as, as wives, as servants, keep our eyes fixed on him, who loved us and gave himself for us. Keep us, we pray, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, keep us from temptation. Keep us, we pray, walking, for your, for your glory's sake, walking the path of righteousness, that we might serve your people well, please you in all we do, and on that day receive the kingdom prepared for us. We ask this in Jesus' glorious and powerful name. Amen.